Welcome everybody. It's, uh, it's great to see so many of you. So I'm Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor at the LSE and it's my job to introduce uh, today's speaker. Uh, but before I do that, I have a couple uh, announcements. So please turn off your uh, mobile or put it on silent. I always ask that and it still happens now and then. That somebody embarrasses himself or herself. Uh, but for those of you who want to tweet, there is a hashtag and it's LSE Manning. The event is being recorded, and if everything goes well, it will be made available on the uh, LSE events uh, webpage. The plan is that Alan is going to talk for like 40, 45 <coughs> minutes, and then there'll be an uh, opportunity for you guys to ask uh, questions. So that, let me turn to the more important part of my job, and it's to introduce uh, today's speaker. So Alan Manning is a professor at uh, the LSE, and a colleague of mine. He's a director of the Center for Economic Performance uh, Program on Community. He has published uh, many articles, well-cited articles, on a variety of topics, including the you know, economic-type topics like the minimum wage and wage inequality and unemployment, and, uh, but also more uh, exotic ones like the American Idol, but not the television series. But he's definitely an expert on... Uh, this evening's topic, immigration. So please join me in welcoming this evening's speaker. Okay, well, thank you very much um, for those kind uh, introductory words. Um, I guess it looks like we have a sort of a full house here. I was told people were turned away, and I guess one of the reasons for that is that... Um, Immigration is a topic that a lot of people are interested in at uh, the moment. So I'll just give a kind of very brief background of, of, of my uh, talk. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, attitudes to migration in the UK and other countries. I'm going to talk a bit about levels of migration, um, just because um, I think it's important just to sort of lay out um, the background, the sort of the lay of the land, if you like. I'm then going to talk quite a lot about um, what I think the labour market impact of immigration is, both sort of the more theoretical and actually the evidence. And then at the end, I'm going to talk rather less about, but a little bit about other impacts of immigration. I'm more a labour market economist, so my expertise is much more on the labour market side. Um, but many of the concerns that people have about immigration, I think, relate not just to labour market impacts, so it would be incomplete to really miss those out completely. Um, so let's just start with attitudes to immigration. So this, every month, actually for the last... 40 years, more or less, um, Ipsos Mori have asked um, people in Britain an open-ended question on what they think is the most important issue facing Britain. And this here gives you the fraction of people responding, um, and they group together immigration, immigrants, and for most of this period, race relations goes in there as well. Although actually most of the people responding here are actually talking about it these days at least are mentioning immigration. And this gives you the fraction who represent that. And you can see there was a period in the late 1970s when quite a lot of people uh, mentioned um, immigration. And then there was a period right through to sort of the late 1990s in which um, hardly anybody 
mentioned immigration at all. And then the fractions of people mentioning immigration uh, rose quite sharply. Um, just before the financial crisis reached almost 40%. Um, and then in the financial crisis went down a bit. Actually, people said they were most worried about the economy, perhaps unsurprisingly. But since the recovery, um, the fractions being concerned about immigration have risen again uh, to now be almost half the population. So this is a currently, current level of concern is really the highest by some margin since records began, and, you know, this is over the last 40 years. And this level of concern is, is not unique um, to the UK. So Eurobarometer asks a very similar uh, question to people in all the EU countries um, twice a year here. I, I put up the results for... Uh, autumn 2014 and autumn 2015. Now, up to this autumn, actually, the UK uh, was one of the EU countries where, in which people were m most likely to mention immigration as one of the most important issues facing their country. So, um, in autumn 2014, it was 38% of Britons, whereas there was an average across the EU of only 18%. But that's now kind of changed quite a lot. So, I um, mean, all the... Um, this is, I'm sure, connected to the asylum uh, crisis and the issue of refugees. Uh, but across the EU as a whole, the proportion has doubled in the past year. Uh, the UK, it's actually gone up, but much less than doubled. Um, and the UK no longer really stands out as a country in which the level of concern is particularly high. So, you know, uh, whereas 44% of Britons mentioned this, um, it's now up to 76% of Germans. Um, so this is something which is, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is not really um, unique to, to the UK. So that's what people think about immigration um, as an issue. Um, and very crudely, those attitudes do mirror um, the pattern of net migration. So this graph here gives back for as long as we've got records, which is roughly 50 years, shows you um, each year the dark um, green line is total immigration into the UK. Uh, the light green line is emigration from the UK. And the bars are the difference between the two, net migration. And up until um, sort of the mid-1990s, um, immigration and emigration more or less cancelled each other out. So the UK was a country in which net migration was pretty close to, to zero. But then starting in the sort of mid to late 1990s, which is the period when concern about immigration began to rise, um, immigration uh, ro began to rise quite sharply. Emigration rose as well, um, but not as sharply. And the consequence is that net migration uh, rose quite substantially. And so, over, um, and so now, um, for the last 10 years or so, it's probably averaged something like 200,000 um, a year uh, more immigrants than emigrants. And this year, um, this figure stops in 2014, but the figures for this year have gone over 300,000. And so these are, you know, kind of high levels. And put in a broader historical context, that's really something that isn't isn't something that we're kind of used to. So this gives you estimates of net migration into the UK um, are going back by decade for the past 100 years. 
And basically, for most of that period, um, the UK was a country in which most people, more people left than arrived. It's not that there was no immigration. Um, where there was quite a lot of immigration, for example, in the 50s and 60s, but there was an awful lot of emigration at the same time. And so this period of um, net migration averaging something over 200,000 a year really stands out as something that is quite different from um, historical experience over a very long period of time. And if one wants to put the UK situation in a European context, um, this is sort of figures for 2013 of net migration for most all of the EU countries. Um, the UK comes out as the second highest in that year um, behind uh, Germany. Um, if we had, I think, when we get the figures for 2015, Germany is going to be off the scale. It's going to be, I think, over a million um, uh, this year. The UK is going to be a bit over 300,000. But it's not the case that all... Um, EU countries have high positive levels of net migration. It's concentrated on quite a few. I would make the observation at this point that there's a temptation to extrapolate into the future to assume that what's happening now is going to continue to happen for a very large, uh, long period. And I would like to point out that actually these net migration figures, uh, particularly within the EU, can be extremely volatile. So, for example, what you notice here is that Spain, in 2013, had net emigration of over 200,000 people, i.e. 200,000 more people left Spain than arrived in Spain. Uh, but that was actually rather a recent phenomenon. Actually, if you went back a bit further, before the financial crisis, 2004 to 8, Spain actually had the largest inflow of any EU country. And the total inflow in that, that four-year period was almost 3 million people, averaging something like 700,000 a year, um, uh, which was sort of, you know, double the, the record levels the UK currently has. But since 2007 and the financial crisis being really severe in Spain, that has simply not just disappeared, but has actually reversed. And now we have a situation where large numbers are leaving Spain. And so the relative pattern of boom and slump is really the simplest explanation for why we get, um, at some periods, countries are, have very high positive levels of net migration, um, at other times have high levels of net emigration. And so an awful lot, I think, about the British figures will depend upon how the British economy does relative to other EU um, economies, and in recent years it's been doing relatively well, and that's part of the reason uh, that we see it. And you can see that even if you look at um, EU immigrants into the UK and the shares coming from different um, EU countries, you can see there are three categories of countries here. There are the, country, the Eastern European countries that joined the EU in 2004, Poland being the, the largest one of those, that's the pink line. Um, and immigration from those countries has been relatively stable now for quite a, quite a while, actually. Um, then you've got immigration from the countries, EU two countries. This is just Bulgaria and Romania that joined in 2007 and had free access to the UK labour market from the start of 2014. We're in the period in which those numbers are actually rising. I would expect them to rise a bit and then fall back. Um, but you also notice that as the southern European countries... Um, the Eurozone crisis has led to a big increase in the fraction of immigrants from the EU 
into the UK that are actually coming from the old EU, EU members, and that's mostly southern uh, European countries affected by the, um, the Eurozone crisis. So economic success and failure is a hugely important driver of, of these flows, particularly among EU countries. Now, the audience at the, in the LSE is always very well informed, so I thought I would find out um, how well in, informed you are about immigration. So I was going to ask you a question here. So what, fraction, what do you think the fraction in 2015 of the UK population is that's foreign-born? Can I just ask for a show of hands here? How many of you think it's less than 10%? Handful. Between 10 and 20%? Rather more. Between 20 and 30%? Probably about the same number again. Between 30 and 40%? Numbers going down a bit now. 40 and 50%? And more than 50%? Anyone? One person there. Okay. Well, the actual um, answer, the best answer that we have is that, well, this is 2014, but actually 2015 would be very similar, is that it's 12.5%. So those of you said between 10 and 20%, give yourself a pat on the, on the black back. And um, although it was down towards the nearer 10% uh, than, than 20%. But I think if I averaged answers across the audience as a whole, we'd find that actually people, the average response was rather higher than that. And that's actually, you know, in that regard, you sort of mirror the general population. Um, so, for example, in 2013, the Royal Statistical Society did a survey and they asked the, the UK population at uh, random, what do you think, um, the, what fraction of the population do you think are immigrants? And the average response was 31%, i.e. more than double uh, the actual number. Um, it should be said in this context that the, that survey asked people about many aspects of UK uh, society and economy, and people on average were wrong about almost everything. So immigration doesn't um, necessarily stand out uh, in this regard. And interestingly, people, when they were asked about um, immigration in their local area, the average response of that, which should be the, the same thing, actually was lower. So in the eyes of people, there were always immigrants and more somewhere else than where they actually are. Um, and that's also mirrored in the fact that if you ask people, um, do you think immigration is a serious problem for the UK, for your local, in your local area, people are less likely to say that than, than, than saying they think it's a problem in the country, country as a whole. So one of the difficulties with, I think, making um, good policy about migration is that um, public is not always so well informed about actually the level and the nature of immigration. And the views that people hold are often very strongly held and are... Um, and, and, you know, don't always seem to be so responsive to, um, you know, being told what the best estimates are. So in that survey, um, the, the, those people who said that the actual proportion was 26% or higher, I double the best estimate that we have, um, were then asked a follow-up question, which was, according to the last census, um, you know, the actual proportion is 13%. You said the proportion was much higher. Why did you say that? Um, 
And people kind of, these are the answers, people could give more than one answer, so this adds up to more than 100%, so it's not sort of illiterate in, in that sense. Um, so the most common answer is people come into the country illegally, so aren't counted. Now, that actually isn't true. I mean, they, they attempt in the census to count um, illegal immigrants. They, attempt, they don't worry about whether you're legal or illegal. You might question the exact way in which they do that, but it would be hard to say that they underestimate by 13%, and it would be hard for me as an individual to think I have more idea how many illegal immigrants there are in the country than the Office for National Statistics uh, does. There are some people who said, well, you, you may tell me that's what the census says, but I still think the proportion <laughs> is much higher than 13%. And then people say, what I see in my local area, what I visit other, when I see when I visit other towns... It's just guessing, that's maybe fine. And then a lot of people say the media is responsible for this, but actually that actually isn't the most common response. Um, so, you know, there is this problem that this is a group of people um, giving, being asked the question, then being told, actually, that's not quite right. You know, actually, this is what our official statistical body says, and then not really saying, well, I don't really care what they, uh, what they say. And again, that adds to the difficulty of making policy, I think, in this area. Now, the UK is not alone in that. This is a selection of countries where we plot the, what fraction of the total country are immigrants against the actual proportion. Um, and you can see the UK is sort of on, on the high side um, in the estimated fraction, but not the highest. So the US is kind of even higher. The US actually doesn't have a much higher fraction of immigrants than the UK, but Americans are not convinced of that, and when you see Donald Trump talking about immigration a lot, you know, he's playing on those, those fears that people have. But generally, people everywhere overestimate the number of immigrants. I don't know if that's because there's immigrants being, on average, a little bit different, attract the eye uh, and the attention a little bit more than just, you know, ordinary sort of British people. Okay, so that's the sort of background that I think is, um, is I hope, kind of useful. I hope, well, I hope you sort of knew all of that, but maybe um, you didn't. So now I'm going to just go on to talk a bit about um, the labour market theory, impact of immigration, and <coughs> the theory of that. Now, the simplest view of, and I, I think actually the right way to think about the effect of immigration on the labour market, is that um, immigration just simply increases the number of people in a country. And to the extent the immigrants want to work, it increases the labour force. And it may also alter the mix of the types of people in the labour market. So they may be better or worse educated, say, than the the resident workers. Um, So they may lead to more or higher level of skill on average um, in the labour market. Now, kind of what does economic theory um, say about how your labour market prospects are likely to be affected by the entry of a migrant. And the key idea that economics has here is whether it dep- the answer to that question depends on whether uh, the immigrant is going to be a substitute for you or what would be called a complement to you. So a substitute for you is, is some, a worker who does a job like you. So the entry of an immigrant is going to increase and the supply of people like you um, in the UK labour market. And generally we think that when supply of people like you become, the skills that you have, 
become less scarce or more common in the labour market, we think this is generally going to be to your disadvantage. So they're going to be more people like you trying to get, um, you know, get the jobs for, for people like you. The competition is more intense. Life gets a little bit harder. On the other hand, a complement is a worker who is the sort of the type of worker you work alongside. So, for example, if you're um, you know, a skilled manager, if you think of managers and production workers, if there are more immigrants are production workers, and you know, all workers, including immigrants, all production workers need managers, need managing, so they need managers, then the entry of more immigrants into the labour market is likely to be good for you as a, as a manager. Um, and so we then expect actually this to be to your advantage. So it wouldn't be the case that we generally think that the entry of immigration into the labour market is to the disadvantage <coughs> or the advantage of all workers. We might expect there to be some workers for whom it's good news, other workers for whom it's bad news. Now, an important distinction as well is I think, between what I would call direct and indirect substitutes and complements. So the way I've expressed it so far, it's easiest to think of substitutes and complements within a workplace. Worker, you know, someone who does the job that you're doing or someone who does a job alongside you and you need in order to do your job effectively. But it's also important that, to realise that in the economy as a whole, there are what we call indirect substitutes and complements. And I'll give a number of examples of this. So, for example, um, if immigration means that some goods and services become cheaper, this is generally going to be the dis to the disadvantage of workers who produce competing goods with those goods. So this sort of good has become cheaper. Consumers are now tempted to buy that instead of the good that you produce. That's going to be an adverse effect on your labour market opportunities. On the other hand, there may be some um, goods that, as this other good becomes cheaper, actually you buy more of other goods. Those are goods we'd call complementary goods. The demand for those rises. The demand for the workers who produce those goods also rises. And I think there's some reasons to think that actually those indirect complements may be particularly important. So if immigration leads to some goods becoming cheaper... One of the effects of that is that consumers can buy everything that they were originally buying and now they have a bit more money left over um, once they've done that because some of these goods become cheaper. Now, what do they do with that money left over? Well, they start going out and they spend it on other things, all sorts of other things. And as they spend it on other things, they obviously create demand for the workers who produce those other things. And so the demand for the labour of actually a very wide range of workers um, goes up. So if some goods become cheaper, and as a result of that you think, oh, I've got a bit more spare cash, I'm going to go and get myself a haircut. I mean, not me, obviously, I don't really, or, or Voughton, maybe, I don't know. Um, um, you know, the employment of hairdressers goes up. And so this is really quite an important effect to bear in mind. And somewhat related to it is the fact that when immigrant, if immigrants do get into work, they earn money and then they spend money 
And as they spend that money, they, you know, they demand labour from the produce people who produce those goods as well. But those sort of indirect compliments, even though they may be very important, may be largely invisible. It becomes very, almost impossible. Sometimes it sounds a bit ridiculous to say, oh, that person over there, you know, they've only got <coughs> their job because of immigration. I think the losers from immigration are likely to be much more visible um, and more concentrated uh, than the gainers. And that is perhaps one of the reasons why um, people tend to think that it must be the case um, that immigration has negative effects on, on the labour market. So I've tried to, you know, just to summarise that, make the point that there are likely to be some workers who gain from immigration, there are going to be others who lose. Nothing I've said says that any of these effects are going to be particularly large. Um, but I kind of want to look at a bit at the evidence now. Now, there's a, a, a lot of studies on the UK, other countries as well. And there isn't a consistent pattern of empirical findings. Some of the studies find positive overall effects of immigration. Some find negative effects. Some find positive effects for some groups, negative effects for others. But I think the defining feature of most of those studies is that none of the estimated effects are very large, either for good or for bad. And so that contrasts really with much of public opinion, which seems um, you know, convinced that the effects must be very large and, and very negative and, and hold that opinion with a high uh, what seems quite, like, quite a high degree of certainty. So I'm going to try and give you a flavour of why the evidence isn't really um, very convincing that the labour market effects of immigration are kind of large and uh, negative. So I'm going to look at some very sort of high-level evidence. So first of all, this is um, the employment rate of the UK-born population, working-age UK-born population, so age 16 to 59, um, from 1979 through to 2014. So the employment rate is just a fraction of people who are in work. Now, you notice here big swings in the employment rate. Those reflect um, booms and recession. So very severe recession at the start of the 1980s, the employment rate fell from 74% to 68%. This is you know, the early period of the Thatcher government. Then a very strong recovery through the early 1990s, a very severe recession again at the start of the 1990s. Um, then the employment rate rising again. Um, then very stable for a while. Then the financial crisis coming in, big fall in the employment rate, and the recovery in the more recent years. So the effect of the economic cycle on the overall employment rate is very, very clear. But now let's say, well, actually, for much of this period, the UK didn't have much in the way of immigration, net, immigra net migration. But starting from the late 1990s, the early 2000s, particularly maybe after 2004, when the Eastern European countries uh, joined the EU, um, you know, we had a lot of net migration. 
Well, did the employment, was the employment rate of British, British natives, this is the UK born, adversely affected in that period? Well, it's hard to make the case that there was really a very hard, um, sizable negative effect. The employment rate throughout that period of very rapid net migration was actually the highest we've had ever since records began. And, of course, then when we come to the financial crisis, it falls down. It's nothing to do, we know that's nothing to do with migration. Again, in the recovery, we've had high levels of net migration. But that hasn't stopped the employment rate of British-born uh, workers recovering to very close to uh, record levels. Now, that doesn't prove um, that there was no effect of immigration. You could say, well, I think that the employment rate would have been even higher in the absence of net migration. And it's possible that that's the case. But it's not really plausible that that would have been a very big effect. If you imagine trying to draw on that diagram what I think it would have been in uh, the absence of net migration, I think you would very quickly, if you drew it, the actual level in the absence of net migration is much higher. It just would seem very, very implausible. So it's, it, that's one piece of high-level evidence that net migration, high levels of net migration, don't seem particularly connected to low employment rates overall. But you might say, well, that's you know, the UK labour market as a whole. There are winners and there are losers, as I've suggested is quite possible. And perhaps, in particular, people are often concerned it's the low-skilled workers who had suffered the most uh, from immigration. Well, this is the employment rate for um, the UK. Similar um, picture as before, but now drawn for the... UK-born population with no qualifications at all, so the lowest um, skilled group. Now, this is a group that, over time, has had very large falls in its employment rate, from 70% in the late 1970s to something like 50% uh, now. Now, one should bear in mind that it's not quite clear that we're comparing the same people in 1979 with 2014. In 1979, it was 55% of the UK working age population had no qualifications whatsoever. That proportion in 2014 is 10%. So, the, you know, we're talking about that was half the population back in 1979. Now this is sort of the bottom 10%, really. So this is not necessarily comparing like to like. So it's clear that the labour market... Um, for low-skill workers, if you haven't got any qualifications in the UK, has deteriorated hugely over this period. But it's also clear that it's deteriorated. The biggest periods of deterioration have been in recessions in the early 1980s, uh, the early 1990s, um, and the financial crisis. And again, the period in which net migration began to rise um, was not really the period in which the employment rate was deteriorating um, a lot for this group. So again, it seems hard to make the case that this particular, even this particular group, have had a very large negative effect from migration on, on their labour market prospects. Now that's about employment. You might say, oh, well, what about earnings? 
So this is a picture uh, of what's been happening uh, to earnings. So this picture here is the hourly earnings of the bottom 10% of the, the workforce relative to the median, relative to the average. So you can see that in the early 1980s, um, the bottom 10% earned roughly 62% of, of the median, of the average. We then had a period in which that proportion fell a lot, down to 54%. So that was a period of really strongly rising inequality. So the people in the bottom end of the labour market were doing worse and worse relative to the average. But actually, since the mid-1990s, we've seen a reversal of that. The people at the bottom end of the labour market have actually been doing better relative to the average um, than for much of the earlier period. Um, and actually, they haven't gone back to where they were 35 years ago, um, 40 years ago, but, um, you know, they're not far off. So it's not really the case that there's any evidence that the earnings of the lowest paid workers of the UK have been disproportionately affected by the high levels of net migration that we've had in much of the latter part of the period after 2000. Um, now, I should say that that... I don't want to say that immigration has, has caused the improvement. I think most of that is actually driven by the minimum wage, um, which is another topic I sometimes talk about. But it's just it's not the case that there's really any evidence that um, migration has had a very large effect. And, you know, this comes out um, many different ways that, that you look at it. So this is some, these are some graphs produced by one of my colleagues, Jonathan Wadsworth. Um, so what he does here, he says, well, different parts of the UK differ hugely in the change in the share of immigrants that they've had in the UK. So each of these dots represents a sort of local authority. And, um, you know, so you can see there's, there's one local authority where the immigrant share has risen by 14 percentage points. There's some where it's hardly risen at all. And what he does um, <coughs> in these graphs in the left-hand panel he plots the change in the unemployment rate between 2004-2012. So this is a period in which there's a lot of net migration on average against um, the change in um, the immigrant share by area. And what you can see is that there's no relationship whatsoever. That's for the you know, UK population as a whole. If you're worried about less skilled workers, perhaps young people, um, the right-hand panel does the same for uh, the fraction of young people not in education, employment or training, which is often used as a measure of poor labour market outcomes. Again, there is no relationship um, there. You can do the same with wages. So this is um, the change in real wages by area in the UK related to the change in the, the share of immigrants. No relationship. The change, you do it for less skilled workers. There's no real uh, relationship in there. So I think that, you know, the overall impression that I want you to come away with is that there is no obvious smoking gun that says that immigrants have had a large negative effect on the labour market outcomes of any group of workers, in, which is such that no reasonable person um, could, could deny it. 
Now, I should go, want you to go the other direction. There are some respectable academic studies that do find a negative effect of immigration on some groups, some low-skill occupations, some low-skill workers. Um, and so there is some dispute within the academic um, literature about it. But although the, ac the academics like to sort of magnify disputes, no, the effect is positive, no, the effect is negative, actually both of the positive effects and the negative effects are both very small in the big scheme of things and in the big scheme of the sort of changes in employment rates and wages and wage inequality that we see um, quite generally. So I want to sort of try and labour this point. I hope I'm not kind of labouring it too much um, by adopting an international perspective as well. As I've said, the very simplest view of immigration is that it increases the labour force in a country. And if you compare countries over long periods of time, um, they differ hugely in the, in the extent to which their labour forces have increased. Um, now, one of the reasons why labour force goes up is because of net immigration. Um, sometimes countries differ in their fertility rate, so it's the natural population growth. Sometimes, and a big factor is in, over the past 50 years has been the entry of women into the labour force. But if you look across countries, you see very strongly that employment follows increases in the labour force. So if the labour force in a country has increased much more than in another country, then employment in that first country has increased much more than in the second country. And this is what that graph looks like um, for, I think, there are 14 countries over here. So this is over something like a 50-year period. So on the horizontal vertical axis here, we have the percentage change in employment in a country. On the horizontal axis, we have the percentage change in the labour force. And you see there's an incredibly strong relationship between the two. There are countries like Canada, Australia and New Zealand in which the percentage increase in the labour force has been of the order of 200%. So the labour force has tripled in this 50-year period. Um, they have had increases, and that's mostly in those countries because of net, net migration, actually. They have had, by far and away, the largest increase, increases in employment um, of all of these countries. If you look at the UK, actually, its increase over this sort of 50-year period in, in the labour force is relatively modest, and its increase in employment has been relatively modest. So the important point is that in the, in the long run, Increases in labour force, and I'll try to explain why in a minute, cause changes, bring about changes in employment, more or less one for one. And there's no, most, the red line here is the 45 degree line. So in most countries, actually, employment has risen less than the labour force, meaning that the employment rate um, has fallen. But there's no relationship between um, the change in employment rate and the change in the labour force in countries. So countries that have had big increases in the labour force, if anything, have had slightly bigger increases in employment rate, um, changes, more positive changes in employment rates, or less negative, actually, um, in, in this period. So it's really not the case um, that um, the number of jobs in an economy is fixed and if you increase the labour force, 
through immigration and through any other reason, women entering the labour market or natural population growth, older workers deciding to work longer. There's no evidence. Uh, it's completely wrong to think of the number of jobs as being fixed. So an increase in labour supply naturally leads to an increase in labour demand. But it seems that's something that it seems very hard to convince people of. So a lot of people find that very, very hard to, to believe. And, um, you know, perhaps it's because one's own personal experience that if you apply for a job and you don't get it, it's very natural to think if only that person, the successful candidate, hadn't applied, that job would have been mine. I have only not got that job because this person is in the labour force. It's very natural that that's the way you see that as an individual. But the economy is not like... Economies are remarkably flexible in creating jobs. And labour economists have a word for the view that the number of jobs is fixed. They call it the sort of the lump of labour fallacy. Um, and it really is exactly that. The number of jobs in the economy is not fixed. It responds very strongly to changes in the labour force, whether those changes come from immigration or any other source. And the evidence is very clear on, on that point. Um, so if there's one thing I'd like to take you, uh, you to take away from it is not to think of the number of jobs in an economy as being fixed. And so that if there is immigration, an immigrant who gets a job, that is inevitably at the expense of a native-born worker who would otherwise have got the jobs. I should say I don't expect to be successful. I sometimes talk to people as well about the effects of new technology and robots on labour markets, and I make a similar point that actually people think of new technology as always displacing labour, whereas the evidence, the long-run evidence, is very strongly that it hasn't. Um, but... I normally think I, I'm, I, I can be quite successful in persuading people um, that is true in the case of robots, but my experience of trying to persuade people in the, in the context of immigration is that I have a much worse track, uh, track record. But please do not believe in the lump of labour um, fallacy. That's just one thing I would say. Okay. Now, you know, just a summary of that. Um, theory and evidence. The labour market impact of immigration probably been positive for some workers, negative for others. Overall, there's a very small gain or loss for UK workers. And, you know, that perspective is actually sort of shared by the, by the UK population. So this is from the European Social Survey. So this is what people say when they're asked whether they think it's generally bad or good for the UK's economy that people come to live here from other countries. Overall, the total is that more people think it's bad than good. Oh, it's a non-trivial proportion, think it's, it's good. But there's a very marked division by education. So the more educated you are, the much more likely you are to think that immigration has been good uh, for the economy. And if you've got a low level of education, you're much more likely to think um, that it's been uh, bad. And that, may, I, and that, to some extent, is perhaps consistent with what we'd expect. We think that many immigrants, particularly in recent years, have been competing with lower-skilled workers more than with graduates. Um, and graduates um, like the fact that you know, immigrant labour, um, low-skilled labour, is more readily available in, in the 
uh, economy. Okay. Now, I've, done, I've talked about things from the perspective of British residents. What about migrants? Now, I've, I've sort of emphasised that the effects on, on British, uh, the UK-born, probably not very big one way or the other. But the gains for the migrants are typically really quite large. So the one gain, you know, the clear people who benefit from this migration are the migrants themselves. And particularly if they're coming from poorer countries than the UK. So, for example, um, annual wages in Poland, currently about 50% of UK level. So, it, it, you know, if you went from an average job in Poland to an average job in UK, you'd get a big pay rise. The gap is even larger if you take workers coming from developing countries. Um, now, one of the um, situations we, we currently have is that most of these potential migrants, um, it, it, in the past, income gaps between countries were very very large, but often the people in the poorer countries were so poor that they couldn't afford to actually even get themselves physically to the UK. Um, and that's kind of not really the case so now. So although the income gaps are very large, um, potential migrants, people who wanted to migrate, can often, perhaps by combining family resources, quite easily get together the money that would be needed to physically get people um, people to the, to the UK. Um, and, you know, one way of seeing that, a very stark way, is that if you think about um, those poor people sort of risking their lives going from Turkey to, to, to Greece, um, they're paying people smugglers um, sums of money for that journey, risking their lives, which is actually greater than the business class airfare from Istanbul to Berlin which is a much safer way of travelling. Um, it's just that if you tried to get on a plane in Istanbul to go business class to Berlin, you wouldn't be allowed on the plane. And so it's not that they're without resources. They're completely without resources. No people smuggler would be interested in them at all. They're only interested in them to the extent that they have some money that can pay. So we live in this period in which there were big gains from migrating from some countries to others in which people do, are not so destitute that they'd have no resources available to them. And um, that is essentially the root of what is the policy problem of immigration facing um, the, the, the sort of richer countries. The, I think the natives have very little or no incentive to want to allow large number of migrants into the country because the gains, you know, they actually think the gains are very negative. I'm not sure I agree with that perception, but I don't think the gains for the natives are very positive either. Um, and there are very many potential migrants who would like to enter the country. So there's an almost inevitable gap between the demand and the number of people who would like to migrate to a country like the UK and the number of people that UK residents feel comfortable with letting into the country. And that, that gap between demand, and, demand for migrants and the supply of migrants is what is, is the root cause of why it becomes such a contentious policy issue. Now, one thing that's relevant is how big is the supply of potential migrants. Now, the best estimate for that probably comes from the Gallup World Poll. They, they poll people in now 
almost every country of the world, so there are 146 countries. And they asked people about whether they would like to move permanently to other countries, where they would like to go in that case. And actually, because people all over the world are full of talk, they also asked them whether you're planning to do it in the next 12 months and actually whether you've actually done anything more than just sort of idly talk about it. So they estimated that roughly 630 million adults in the world as a whole, that's 14% of the adult population, would like to permanently migrate from the country where they currently are. 48 million plan to do it in the next 12 months, and 19 million actually making preparations to move. And Gallup takes all this data and they compute a potential net migration index, um, which is the number of adults who would like to come to a country minus the number who would like to leave as a share of the, the adult population. And this is what they come up with for that. So I, I put up two years here just to make the point these numbers are quite volatile. They're probably quite uncertain, but they probably give some idea of orders of magnitude. So the net migration index for the UK was something like 50% um, in 2010-12. That means that um, Gallup found something like probably 25 million people in the world who said they would like to migrate partly, um, to permanently to, to the UK. Um, and I think it's reasonable to say that um, uh, immigration of 25 million is beyond, considerably beyond what the average British voter would think of as being um, acceptable at the moment. Uh, the UK is, you know, not, you know, is on the high side here. It's not uh, the highest numbers. Um, but these numbers are quite high. So there's a big gap between the number of people who would like to move to a country like the UK and the number of people that I think UK voters would feel comfortable with uh, allowing into the country. Now, I should say on this that even though the potential supply of migrants is high, um, there are often natural limits to the numbers of people who will come through any single route. So this gives you the distribution of year of arrival of Polish immigrants into the UK. Um, in, this was in 2015. They were asked when they first came to the UK. Um, there's a little bulge down there at 1990. That's like everyone prior to 1990. There was actually quite a sizable Polish population after the Second World War um, in, in the UK. They were the second biggest immigrant group in the 1950s. Um, so there's a sort of, they're quite old now, but there's still a few of those left. You then see that when they joined the EU, 2004, um, and they had the right to move to the UK and work in the UK, there's a huge spike in the numbers coming in. Um, but then you can see that that sort of tailed off again. It fell quite a lot in the financial crisis, recovered a bit, and then is sort of stabilising. So there, is, there are dangers with extrapolating from current net migration numbers in, into the future without thinking that there is actually a natural limit to the number of Poles who will ever want to permanently migrate um, to the UK. But across the world as a whole, there are a lot of people, I think it's reasonable to think there are a lot of people who would like to come to the UK. So I've talked mostly about labour market impacts. I'll just very quickly um, talk about other um, um, factors import, important in influencing views on migration. So it's not, people are concerned not just about the economic or labour market impacts. They're concerned about um, the extent to which um, immigration changes the character um, of a country. So this is a response to a question about whether the UK's cultural life 
has been generally undermined or enriched by um, immigration. You can see that views here are you know, more mixed than on the economic side, so the fraction saying undermined and enriched are, are not so very different. Um, again, you see the pattern, very clear pattern with education, that more educated people, uh, graduates tend to say, much more likely to say they think immigration has enriched the UK culturally, less educated people, much less likely to think that. And that's also if they're asked for an overall view of whether um, immigration has made the UK a, a worse or a better place to live. Um, more people say worse than better overall. But again, that splits quite strongly by education. So the graduates tend to have a more positive view of it uh, than uh, the less educated. So these are things saying that people are concerned not just with economic impacts, but also <coughs> with non-economic impacts. <coughs> now, what are those most important other effects? Well, I think the main single biggest effect of net migration is that it adds to the population. And as the population rises, that does put pressures on housing, on public services, congestion on transport infrastructure and so on. And because those immigrants, you know, they have to live somewhere, inevitably the character of some neighbourhoods are going to change because, you know, they're not all, you know, they have to live somewhere. And that, again, is something that people care about. Now, I think it's undoubtedly the case that these pressures do um, occur, but... You know, there are ways to manage those pressures well and ways to manage them badly. So, for example, the UK has not been very good in building, increasing the number of houses uh, that we have, increasing the supply of housing. In recent years, we've had sort of recent announcements trying to sort of kick-start new housing, but many, most estimates suggest when we haven't been building for a very long period of time. Um, as many houses as we need to house the, the rising population. And you don't have to be a genius to work out that the combination of a housing stock rising slowly and a, a, more slowly than the population is going to cause pressure in the housing market um, and, and, and that's going to be problems. But of course, the simple, there is a simple solution to that, which is simply to build new housing. And the immigrants themselves often bring the skills that are needed to do that. I mean, many Eastern European immigrants, um, you know, worked in construction. Um, we employed them to build the Shard, other office blocks in the City of London. We didn't really use them to build new houses or new public housing. Um, and so, you know, these are problems, but also perhaps problems with more of a, a solution. And so it's right to think about you know, net migration, increasing population, causing growing pains, which you can manage more or less effectively, and particularly in the area of housing, we haven't been um, so effective in, in that. Um, it also affects the neighbourhood of, uh, the character of neighbourhoods, what's sometimes called community co cohesion. People care about their local community, the way that it looks and feels, whether they feel comfortable, whether they've got lots of friends um, um, in it. Um, but people can't really control the ways in which their local neighbourhood changes. Um, and it's not surprising then that some of the changes to some neighbourhoods have actually been very, very large 
and that, not, and that those changes have not been... Um, not everyone has been comfortable uh, with those changes. And it's sort of a recipe for stress. The recipe for stress is something you care about but you have no control over. And then, you know, how your neighbourhood changes around you is something like that. You can also argue that the way the labour market is changing um, is also a bit like that. You care an awful lot about the demand for your labour, but you can't really control it um, so much. And so it's not perhaps surprising that people find all these changes um, stressful to a degree. So I'll just try and wrap up, because I think I've overrun, really. Um, I think it's important to understand that high net migration into the UK really reflects the relative success of the UK economy and wider society. If you really wanted to um, get rid of net migration, the simplest way to do that would be to cause the UK economy to crash uh, spectacularly. Um, so these are the problems that come with you know, being relatively successful. The UK economy is relatively successful, and whatever its failings, the UK society um, is, is a place. So the, the UK is a, one of the more successful countries in the world as a whole, and that makes people want, um, want, want to live here. It may not always feel that it's so successful when you've been here, or you've always been here, but that's the way it is. I think there's very little evidence of large adverse effects on the UK-born population. I would say that quite possibly there are some, I wouldn't say there are no adverse effects anywhere, but I think there's very little evidence of very large effects. But there's very little evidence of large benefits either. Um, and because the supply of potential migrants is, I think, likely to exceed the number that the UK population are comfortable with for the foreseeable future, you'd expect that migration is going to remain a rather thorny issue for some um, period to come because you can be putting up barriers to inward migration but people who want to come here will be trying to find ways around um, uh, those barriers and so there isn't really any alternative but to try and manage um, immigration um, I think one might aspire in an idealistic world for a world in which everyone is free to live in any country that they want but we're a very long way from that being practical politics um, at the moment for the reasons I try to outline. But I think more than just managing the sort of the flows, we perhaps also need to think about managing the consequences of migration um, a bit more actively than we have to make sure that the benefits that there are are more widely shared and the costs that there are in some places are not unfairly burdensome on, on some groups. Um, and I think we've got more... There's a, again, there have been some developments, policy developments in recently, I think, which reflect that recognition a little bit more, but I think there's perhaps more we could do in that area. So I'll just stop now. So now's the, an opportunity to ask questions. There's a couple of rules. So wait till one of the stewards gets the mic to you, and then try to be concise and ideally limit it to one question so lots of people will have the chance to ask some questions. Um, 
I, I realize this might be um, a bit provocative. It's um, based on an observation I made in the United States in 1984. I'm not sure what stage that is of large immigration uh, cycle into America, whether it was a high level or just before or lower. Um, I observed that um, the Alamo in Texas, um, something of a cultural divide between um, the wasps who were all going in there and the bulk of the population outside who didn't go anywhere near, who were mainly either immigrants or native-born Hispanics and a few African-Americans. Is there any research being done, and I don't want to put you on the spot about figures, into um, levels of immigration in the EU, particularly the UK, of foreign-born, the percentage of foreign-born, together with first generation of foreign-born, uh, to see basically how it works on a multi-generational basis. Uh, now, I'm afraid to say the unspoken bit is from integrationist cultures or, or non-integration, but I, I think we may need to do some sensitive but careful studies of this. I'm, I'm not sure a pure percentage of foreign-born is, is quite enough. Thank you. Let, let's uh, collect a couple of questions. Um, how do you think the, well, uh, immigration obviously affects the dependency ratio, you know, the people who can work to the people who don't. Uh, do you think it's important to consider this uh, in, when considering the issue of migration? Um, thank you, Professor Manning, for the talk. It was very inspiring. Um, my, I just want to say uh, my opinion um, to one of the, the questions you were uh, doing the survey, asking people why people think there are, they, they always think there are more um, immigrants than, than the figure that you have found out. And one of the reasons I have uh, come up in my mind is um, can I suggest... Can I uh, assume that um, most uh, most of the immigrants they come they they are lower skilled labor, so they work in like public uh, services or um, more more like a, a customer service where uh, like restaurant or coffee shop or like food outlet or public transport like where people like everyone can't have contact with them so. It's more visible to everyone, to ordinary people, so that people see immigrants more than um, like local uh, British people. They work in office. They don't come to contact with other general public, so they don't see the native uh, uh, more than that, more than immigrants. So I wonder whether this uh, this explanation um, works. What What do you think? Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you. Should I take those? Okay, so I'll take the, f the first question. Um, I mean, I have actually done myself a bit of research on how, um, on, on immigrants' attitudes along a, a number of uh, dimensions in which you might think that they would be different from the UK, um, 
population and how the children of those immigrants are different as well. So I'll just talk about a couple of those. One of those is about who thinks of themselves as British. Um, so immigrants are less likely to think of themselves as um, British than the British-born. That is not perhaps the most exciting research finding um, ever in the world. But um, the lo- I have, uh, for those of you who are immigrants and recently in the UK, I have a dire warning for you that if you stay in the UK, the longer you stay in the UK, the more likely it is that you are to think of yourselves as uh, British. And by the time you get to your children, um, something between over 95% of them will describe themselves as, as British. Now, there is some variation across countries, and it's actually the immigrants and their children from the poorest, least democratic countries who are most likely to come to think of themselves as British. I said this to an American friend, and he said, well, I'm from the top country. Why would I want to become, think of myself as British? Whereas it's much more appealing, I think, for someone from um, a poorer background, um, a less well-run country, basically, um, to think of themselves as, uh, you know, as far into Britain. So it's not always the the groups that you think is problematic. In terms of the next gen, other things, if you look at, for example, if you take immigrants from countries which, and and I'll take the gender issue as being quite a salient one, where uh, the position of women is... Uh, worse on most dimensions uh, than in the UK. Um, what you find is that the, the next generation, you see those children moving towards the British norm. So if, for example, um, you take... Um, I just for what, give one example. Um, Pakistani. Pakistani-born women in the UK, something like one in... Um, six of them have no education whatsoever, um, so wouldn't be able to read or write in uh, their native language, let alone um, English. So very poorly educated, big gender gap in education, t- typically married, very young, lots of children, no, not really working. If you look at the children, British-born children of those Pakistani women, you see gender education uh, women getting, the women getting much higher levels of education, marriage being delayed, them working uh, much more, much lower fertility rates. And it's not that in one generation you move to the British norm, but you know, the evidence, I think, is that they're sort of going, uh, they move in, in, in that direction. Um, so this is not um, you know, immediate, but I, I, I think the evidence is that in the longer run you, you see actually more Im- integration than people think. People talk quite a lot about how some immigrant groups becoming more different from the UK population. I don't think there's any group that, that for which that claim stands up to scrutiny. This is not saying that there aren't some crazy people who uh, would kind of like to do us harm. There, there are, but that is not uh, representative of the average um, average member of these groups. In terms of um, the, the dependency ratio, yes, I mean, they tend to be um, 
younger um, and so in some sense improve the dependency ratio. But the OECD has done some estimates of how many immigrants you would need to really reverse all the consequences of ageing. And it is very large numbers. And unfortunately, immigrants, like wherever you are born, you do tend to get older yourself. And so the immigrants themselves eventually become age, and so then you need more immigration, younger people again, to, 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 to look after them. So I think although that is a positive effect, it is not a solution to ageing in any of the Western countries. People talked about... Um, I was asked about the skill of immigrants. In the UK, it's a little bit unusual that immigrants tend to be concentrated both at the high and the low skill level part of the distribution. So the occupation with the highest level of immigrants is actually doctors, which is the highest paid occupation um, in, the, in the UK. Um, and in terms of, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure what is um, visible and what is not. Um, I always think whenever I buy British strawberries, they have this picture of a little tractor on with a, um, with a Union Jack on it to make sure that you know that these are British um, strawberries. Um, but almost certainly, um, if you're a British person eating those strawberries, you will be the first British person to have touched that strawberry because um, there's a famous British poem that says there is a corner of a foreign field that is forever England. But in the case of British-grown strawberries, it's, um, there is a corner of an East Anglian field that is forever Ukrainian. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, the farmers want to make you think these are a British product, but they're delivered to you almost entirely by immigrant labour. And that's an example where immigrants are not very visible, I think. But perhaps um, we, we should be. Um, may I? Hello, thank you for the interesting... Uh, I'm here, up here. Oh, you're up there, sorry. <laughs> thank you for the interesting lecture. Um, we all know that the popular belief is that immigrants are stealing jobs, but at the same time, they're also thought to be draining the welfare system by taking unemployment benefits, which is an interesting conundrum in itself. Um, so could you comment on that? Because I've heard that actually immigrants contribute more to the British welfare system than they take out. So do you have any, any information about it? Thank you. Uh, hi. Uh, cheers for the talk, firstly. Lots of questions that I could ask, but I'll keep it to one. Um, you had a chart earlier which seemed to depict that people feel that immigration is a bigger issue nationally than it is locally. And I'm intrigued as to hear kind of what you think gives people that impression, like if that's media or a different factor. Uh, you, you concentrated very much on the economic effects of immigration and you concluded that the benefits were maybe very, very, very small or perhaps slightly <coughs> negative. Could you say anything about the social costs of immigration? And by that I mean the whole panoply of costs, having, for example, 
a structure to deal with immigration at the ports and the airports, uh, immigration courts to decide who should stay and who should not, and working all the way through to the indirect impacts through perhaps uh, <coughs> difficulties in, co- in community cohesion, racial discrimination, and so on. Can you say anything about the social costs of, uh, of, of immigration? Okay, shall I take um, those questions? I mean, first of all, immigrants and whether they um, contribute or drain um, the public purse and the accusation being that they um, do both. Um, I mean, I think the first point to say is that immigrants are very, very heterogeneous, So, um, as are the British population as a whole. So some people pay a lot more in taxes than they take out in benefits. Other people don't. Um, so uh, there are some immigrants who are um, contributing uh, more on average. So, for example, uh, the Eastern, I think the, the best person who studies this is Christian Dussman at, at UCL. So European, Eastern European migrants tending to be rather young, very high employment rates, um, tend to, you know, they, they tend to be rather healthy, they don't, they don't have many children, so they're not really consuming much in the way of public services, they're paying taxes and so on. I think some of the concern has been around um, tax credits, because if you're very low paid, you may be both simultaneously in work and um, claiming benefits in the form of tax credits, so it's not an utter impossibility. Um, But there are other immigrant groups. The less skilled you get um, immigrant groups, the employment rates are lower. You would find that if you did the calculation that um, some of those groups would come out as making a a negative contribution. I mean, that's reflected in our policy in in large degree. For for example, there is no legal route into the UK if you're a low-skilled, non-EU migrant. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is because it felt that they feel that they would actually end up costing more than they um, bring in. Um, in terms of the, the national versus the local perspective, I don't have a good I- example. I, I think it's more, you know, it's tempting to say the media, but when I put up that other graph in which people said, why do you think, you know, why do you overestimate the proportion of migrants so much? Media was really down, quite a long way down, down the list. So I don't really have a very good answer to that question, I'm afraid. Um, Then there was a very wide-ranging question about the social costs of immigration. You asked me to do the full panoply. I'm not quite sure that I'll be able to deliver on uh, on that. But I would say one thing. You mentioned the costs of uh, managing migration courts and the airports and so on. And it's tempting, you know, for I think sometimes the people think and say, well, all I want is this level of migration. I don't want any more. And so we'll just say that's what we're going to have. But unfortunately, because the number of people who would like to come here is, is, is so much larger, it, it, that kind of system is not free. It causes its, it, 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 its own problems. And you have to have, a, you know, spend considerable amounts of money on, the board, on borders, on monitoring what happens in borders, uh, and so on. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll kind of give... Um, one example of this. Um, I mean, a few years ago, uh, the UK government tightened up on um, how easy it was for students 
um, to stay on in the UK after graduation. And one of the consequences as they tightened up on that legal route into the UK was that there seemed to be an increase in the number of applications from, British gradu from graduates on another route, which is what was, is called the Tier 1 Entrepreneur Route. So this is a route which um, is designed to say, well, it would be a great idea if we, we had more entrepreneurs in the UK. So we're going to have a special route for entrepreneurs, and we, we do. Um, of course, you can't really judge who's a, you know, anyone can say, well, I'm an entrepreneur, kind of let me in, so you need some criteria to assess this. Um, and then you've got to say, well, how genuine they are. All of this costs, you know, considerable resources. And then you have the rule is you can't tell who's going to be a successful entrepreneur um, from the point of application. So, you know, this scheme operates that you have the right to remain in the UK if you can um, prove that you're a successful entrepreneur, meaning that you've... Um, uh, and how do we judge that? Well, it's that you've employed um, two people full-time for a year. So it all sounds very sensible, except when you put yourself in the, the foot, in, in the mind of someone who would really like to stay in the UK and is prepared to um, pay money to do so. So they would try and get in under as an entrepreneur. Then they know they need two employees to, um, to, to remain in the UK. But that, at the edge... And nothing, none of this is illegal. It's perhaps just not in the spirit of the law. It just means I'm going to give two people money and they're going to allow me to call them their, my, my employees. I haven't actually got any jobs for them to do. Um, but I've ticked all the boxes. And so policing all of this is very, very costly. And, you know, if you don't have any strong legal routes, you will have problems with people trying to pursue, um, if you make legal entry into the UK harder, you will have problems trying to, with people trying to get in using illegal routes, the main routes of which are not you know, people in Calais or, or the Aegean, is people entering into the UK quite legally on a visa and then simply not exiting the UK when their visa expires. And, you know, it's then, once they've done that, it's very hard, it's very expensive, very hard to actually, you know, deal with that problem. So there is no cost-free immigration policy, I, I would say, in which we can, people in the UK can just say, well, these are the number of immigrants I want. Um, we just kind of legislate for that. And then, it, so it's, it's, a difficult, it's going to be a very difficult problem. I don't think that only answered the best, very small part of your question. There was a question in the back. You go ahead. Okay. Um, presumably, uh, immigration into this country is not sort of evenly distributed. And I wonder if you could give just a sort of brief breakdown of the areas in the UK, and we may be able to guess, but the areas in the UK uh, 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 which have much higher percentage. And that may have quite a lot to do if the people asked in the surveys live in the areas where there is actually a higher percentage, why uh, uh, many people think it's more than 12% nationally. 
question back. Go ahead. Okay, thank you, Professor. Uh, I, I am an economic student here in LSE, and my question is, and other than focus on the effect of immigration on the labor market, uh, do you think there is a causal effect on the UK economy as a whole? Thank you. And there were some questions over here in the corner. So again, thank you very much for a very interesting uh, presentation. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how so we know that migration towards different countries varies a lot in the kind of stock of people who are moving. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how um, the group of migrants who are moving uh, to a different country, how that affects the economical impact that that kind of immigration will have on the country's economy. And then let's, one more, and then this is going to be the last one. Okay. Um, I was wondering if a last wave of migration uh, has been analyzed specifically in terms of its characteristics because you have more people who come for a temporary period of time, so pure economic migrants who come to work for a set period of time, go back to their countries uh, with whatever money they gained. Um, and also the net impact of them sending the money back home. So they might be uh, working full-time, contributing taxes, but also there's some drain on money which we sent for whatever future planning in their own countries. Have been any studies on that and the impact of that on the GDP and the economy? Okay, you want me to take those questions? So firstly, I mean, you're right. Immigrants are not, um, you know, evenly distributed geographically. So the fraction that is foreign-born in, in London is a bit over 40% when... The, you know, the fraction in the country as a whole is 13%. Having said that, it is the case that um, it's actually less unequally distributed migrants than, the, than they used to be. So in particular, the sort of Eastern European migration um, has been much uh, more... In, prior to that, most migrants were concentrated in sort of cities, really. And Eastern European migrants have been much more spread out than that. Um, it, you know, it wouldn't really be unusual um, to walk into a country pub these days and to be served by a, a European, uh, an Eastern European. Um, but, you know, that is not where immigrants were, were in the past. In terms of whether that explains, um, you know, the estimates, no, it's not surprising that people in London um, think that the fraction of migrants in the country as a whole is, is higher than people in some... In the country, but it, it's the case that everywhere um, people overestimate. Um, you know, so it's not surprising you extrapolate from your local area. Um, but people, um, you know, everywhere, even in very low migration areas, give numbers that are, are, are much higher. Um, okay, and, and the next question was about the UK economy as a whole. I focused on the labour market. I focus on the labour market in part because at the end of the day, everything is a, I, I think everything is about people and their lives. Um, and the labour market is just about people who are working, I, I admit, and there are plenty of people who, who don't work. But, so when asked about UK economy as a whole, I think it's always about the people in the UK economy. So sometimes people talk about 
um, migration being kind of good for competitiveness and productivity. And I always think, okay, maybe, but I want to know what is the effect on people. So that's sort of a little bit why I always focus on, on uh, uh, people. Um, then there was a question about the, um, the type of migrants. Um, I mean, migrants are, are, are kind of um, very, very heterogeneous. Um, I think UK policy, every country's policy, has the view that some sorts of migrants are more attractive than others, and they tend to prefer um, higher-skilled migrants over lower-skilled migrants, migrants who are going to work over ones who are not going to work, um, and so on. And I think the main reason for that is that if you calculate the contributions to the, um, to the public purse... Um, you know, those migrants are going to make a, be making a positive contribution. Um, and that's not trivial in the, con in the British context where we have a very sizable national debt to pay off. And if you have migration means a higher population, that debt is spread over more people. And as long as those people are net payers of tax, taxes, they'll be contributing to paying off the debt that we ran up um, in, in over the last 10 years. Um, there was a question about temporary migration. You know, we don't know that much. We know that lots of migrants are temporary, go backwards and forwards. If you went back almost to the first chart I put up, you saw that as, net, as immigration had risen, emigration also rose. And that's because many immigrants, after a while, go back home. We don't have the most fantastic bits of information about that and whether it's changed over time. So when you said the number of temporary migrants has gone up, I'm not quite sure whether I know that to be um, the case or not. Um, it, we also don't really know that much about the size of migrant remittances. To the extent that they are sending money home, it's a bit... I mean, you're the macroeconomist. I guess that's the balance of payments is contributing to a, a negative current account. Yeah? Um, but I think in the context of the overall imports and exports of the UK, I suspect that is a rather small drop in the... Uh, the ocean, so it sort of marginally widens our current account deficit, um, but it's probably not a very large effect, but we don't know that much. Maybe one or two quick questions? <coughs> one in the back? Go on. Yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on it in answering uh, those questions anyway, but I was just wondering how the economic benefit differs between high-skilled and low-skilled workers and, yeah, particularly, particularly, I guess, relating to doctors and nurses, which are two of the, the highest uh, immigrant uh, job yeah. populations. And Thank you. Last question. It's, thank you very much for the lecture. It's probably a similar question to the gentleman had be, below, um, the impact of immigration on the healthcare sector. Uh, you mentioned about the tier working, um, tier type one and two visas, and that's, I, that's been implemented in the NHS itself as well. I'm wondering whether they have been based on studies, perhaps, that, um, that took place that has caused policy to be changed in that, in that area concerning employment because of immigration. Um, okay, um, so high versus low-skill migrants. Now, there is an economic view that I didn't emphasise, that the sort of migrants that you like are the ones who are most different from you. 
because they're the ones who are going to be complements to you and not substitutes. And so that doesn't mean that it's uniformly you always want the higher skill migrants. It would mean that if you're a high skilled person, you actually like lower skilled migrants because you like perhaps a ready supply of uh, low skilled labour. Um, you know, they can do jobs for you, look after your children, and, and you know, things, things like, like, like this. Um, on the other hand, as I sort of emphasised in response to one of the earlier questions, you know, high-skilled migrants are generally going to make more positive contributions to the public finances. And so that is a reason for why, um, you know, you, I think most, that is ultimately the reason why most countries um, uh, prefer, prefer them. Um, a specific question about um, the NHS. Um, well, the, the NHS, I mean, you're right to say that doctors and nurses have a very high share of migrants and have done for a very long period of time. Um, now, there are interesting questions about why that is the case. Um, you know, and I guess the pertinent question is why, you know, is the UK dependent on foreign-trained doctors, for example, um, it's not the case that no British people want to be doctors. If they apply for positions in, positions in medical school to train as doctors, they're heavily oversubscribed. Um, same actually true is for, for nursing um, currently. Um, so, I mean, there are questions around... The NHS has, you know, is very heavily reliant on migrant labour, which is now forced through this sort of tier, what's called the Tier 2 route. And last summer there were some problems when um, a large fraction of the applications of uh, nurses were turned down in that. And, you know, then there was um, a call for nurses to be made a special case, which is being considered, um, considered at the moment. But I think there are more broader questions about why you know, the UK can't train enough doctors on its own. There are plenty of people who would like to be doctors and very well-paid uh, paid job, and I don't really know what the answer to that question is. Great, thanks. So to conclude, I would like to thank all of you for coming, and please join me to thank our speaker one more time.